A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week are all about fathers accused of doing the unthinkable, murdering their children, and then the mother of those children. In one case, a Utah father obsessed with the perfect family image takes the lives of his wife, his five children, when he fears it is all slipping away from him. The wife, who police say endured years of abuse, had just filed for divorce and had taken the children to be with the grandmother. Police say after he killed everyone in the house, he wrote a suicide note blaming his wife for everything. And then he killed himself. Even in his final moment of life, this man did not have the courage to own up to his own evilness. But first, a father in Florida is accused of stabbing to death the mother of his son and then tossing that baby son of his to alligators, according to police. And police say that he did this after that beautiful young mother threw this man a birthday party. The mother was found dead first. Then there was an amber alert issued for the toddler. I am sick even reporting this part, but the baby was found in the mouth of an alligator. The medical examiner has not determined yet if that baby boy was still alive when his father allegedly tossed him to the alligators. We are recording this on Wednesday, April 19th of 2023. Our guest today is the one, the only Allison Treasel, a criminal defense attorney, a friend of this show, a friend of mine. Allison is also a legal expert. You see all the time on television, Access Hollywood and KTLA, and we are just so happy you're here, Allison. How are you? I'm doing well. And, you know, I love being here and I love doing this show with you. Um, it was great. I was I was at a baseball tournament for one of my boys and, and one of the dads came up to me and said, I didn't know you do true crime daily. I love that podcast. And so in homage, <laughs> I'm using my true crime daily mug today. Oh, my gosh. You know, mine burst into pieces when I poured hot water into it. Oh, well, that's I hope that doesn't happen today. I hope that doesn't happen today. No, let's hope not. So I'm using the Perry Mason um, giveaway that I got from the show, which is the Mason dairy. um, That's cute. Milk bottle. I use it as a water bottle. So cute. I love it. I'm still waiting for my replacement mug. I don't know who I have to know on this freaking program to get a mug. (laughs) Well, Anna, you can't take mine. You can't take mine because so far mine's still intact right here. I love that. I love it. That is so hilarious. I guess I just got the one bum one. Oh, my goodness. I'm so happy you're here. We have some really horrible, horrible stories. And um, I think it's important that we always, when we have information about cases, we try and figure out what went wrong and and where the system failed. You know, in this first one, I don't really see the system really failing in this one. But in the second one with the Utah dad obsessed with his image, I think the system failed. I think there were a lot of failures in that one. Right. And one of the things that I love about your show is that what can your listeners do who are in similar positions to protect themselves? And what are the signs? What do you look out for? And I think in that second story that we're going to cover, um, there were signs. There were signs that um, were missed by DCFS um, and and even, even things that the, the mother did herself 
um, where if you're in that position, please make different decisions. Yeah. To save everyone, because yeah. you see the escalation of things. Yeah. And uh, sadly, when there is um, a high level of domestic abuse, family abuse, it is always at that time when the 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 abused the wife generally is about to leave or is leaving right oh it is the most dangerous moment right. ever they, right they've they finally made that decision they filed the restraining order they filed the divorce papers or and that's when they're they're most vulnerable mm-hmm. okay so let's get to our first case which okay. is honestly horrific this is out of St Petersburg Florida where a toddler was found in the jaws of an alligator and his mother stabbed over a hundred times. Allison, when I first heard this report, I heard it kind of backwards because it made national news when the baby was found in Mm. the jaws of an alligator. So at first I thought, oh my God, a toddler who wandered away and was Mm -hmm. snatched by an alligator, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I heard the same story and I thought, oh my gosh, another reason that Florida is a dangerous place to live. Your toddler goes goes wandering off and an alligator snatches them away. But when I heard um, that this was um, as a result of where his, uh, according to the police, um, of something that his father did to him, um, horrific, just horrific. Oh, it's 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 impossible to believe. Honestly, it is. So the man who stands accused here is 21 year old Thomas Mosley. He faces two counts of first degree murder for the stabbing death of 20 year old Passion Jeffrey and then the death of their son, Talon Mosley, the one found in the jaws of the alligator. Now, police say that Thomas Mosley took his son to this body of water and tossed two year old Talon to the alligators. As I said at the top of the program, the medical examiner has yet to determine the cause of death. So we do not know if this baby boy was alive when police say his father tossed him into this lake. Go ahead. Yeah, I I, um, I read that as well. And I think that the autopsy will be very uh, revelatory, but I am not sure if it would change the charges let i mean this is an interesting legal issue for me he tosses this child who's still living into the lake um and is that a premeditated act knowing that this child's either going to drown or be eaten by an alligator i think he still would be facing the same charges even if it the death didn't come at his hands My belief is the charge should be the same. This is first degree murder. It is premeditated. There is no way that it could end well for this toddler under these circumstances. But what really gets me, and it's the moral part of this, is if that baby is alive at the time that he is tossed, the level of terror and the depravity that it takes to do that to an innocent little baby is beyond anything I can stomach. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, Florida is a death penalty state. And if any case um, screens um, of a of circumstances where the death penalty is appropriate, you can be sure that if the prosecutor asks for the death penalty and during and he and he is convicted and they have this penalty phase, that's going to be a conversation that the prosecutor is going to have with the jury. 
that can you imagine the depravity of someone who throws their child to their death? I can't. I can't. And then the image, I mean, the image of that alligator with this two-year-old, because, you know, two-year-olds are not that small, right? They're about, what, two feet tall, probably? Right. Something like that. So the image of this toddler in the jaws of this alligator, and we will hear from the police chief describing how the baby was intact when it was dropped and how the, when a, because there was this Amber alert that was issued, the mother's found dead. And now like, where's the toddler? And it wasn't until the next day that the toddler spotted and the toddler spotted again in the mouth of this alligator and the police shoot the alligator, drops the toddler, but it's too late. The level of evilness that has transpired here, the death this child, this baby has faced. And then I'm just going to say the trauma for anyone else who saw this, including the officer. I mean, I cannot imagine anything more terrifying to see this, to just see this and feel like, ah, right? Right. Absolutely. All right. Now I am going to say, and I, and I say it on every show I'm, I'm on, right. That, um, he is presumed not guilty. Mr. Mosley is presumed not guilty. Mr. Mosley may have the reports that he had some significant mental health issues, which may come into play at some point and may be used as mitigation later in, in his trial or in the death penalty. Um, but the evidence that the have that they have linking him to the crime is substantial. I mean, this is this is not a case where um, the police are were searching for a long period of time to figure out who was the last person with her. Um, And um, there is allegedly physical evidence left behind at the scene that links Mr. Mosley to this killing. I'm waiting on surveillance videos because my hope for the purposes of getting justice is that they will pick up traffic cameras, surveillance cameras, cameras at the lake, which will piece in the timeline and who was where um, and who was visible. Uh, So I'm hoping we don't have all that information yet, but I think that will certainly help to tell the rest of what happened here. And I always say this, absolutely, you're innocent until proven guilty. I think where I become, when I start seeing what we have, not in this case yet, but when you have clear surveillance or security camera videos that show either crimes in the process of being committed and the people or the person being kidnapped, it really does strengthen the case. Oh, of course. Um, It it changes everything uh, for me. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure you're going to walk through sort of what the police have released so far in terms of the evidence and everything. Um, But for me, strength of case is always DNA evidence, DNA evidence, surveillance footage, witness testimony, what they saw, what they heard, what statements was left, what statements have been made by the defendant in the case, but also Google searches. 
Oh, someone's computer searches. I, um, you know, there's a very interesting case that I've been covering about um, um, a man accused of killing his wife and in his computer are, will this toxic substance come up on an autopsy? How much time can you get for this? I'm always blown away at the level of incriminating evidence people leave behind. It's incredible. Yeah, it is amazing. So um, what's also interesting about this case is that this all happened after the victim, the mother here, Passion, was kind enough to throw Thomas a birthday party for his 21st birthday, right? Nice enough to do this for him. Um, Her family was there. Police say that this is how he repaid her kindness with this level of evilness and depravity. Passion Jeffrey had attended high school locally, according to her family. She was an honor student, a dedicated mom. Um, When she was on her break from her job, she would FaceTime her son. And that's an important key part here because She was so close to her family that when she didn't respond to the typical daily FaceTime, the family's like, wait a minute, something's going on here. Right. And so the last time that her family saw her alive was at this birthday party. So they believe police believe that on the day of the murders, which would have been March 29th, Passion, okay, throws the birthday party and everyone left her apartment at about 515 in the evening. According to cell phone data obtained by police, Thomas left the home at 8.42 p.m. that evening and then went to the lake, which is, I guess, south of downtown St. Petersburg. Later that evening at 9.03, Thomas Mosley arrives at his mother's house, which is 10 blocks from the lake. And Thomas's hands and arms were covered with knife marks so bad so bad that he had to go to the hospital. This is the thing that kills me. This guy takes himself to the hospital because he's injured. Injured. No, I I know. Let's take care, right? We've got two people dead, a woman and a baby, but this guy, he's got to go to the hospital and get treated. So I know they talk about his mental competency. Well, I do believe he was competent enough to know he was injured and needed medical attention. I have no compassion here. No, I compassion. Know, I know. I know you don't. And look, it is gruesome and it is awful. Um, it is. It's gruesome and awful. I'm not, you know, a, a mental health defense is not something that a defense uh, uh, t- defense legal team can just slap together. There has to be documentation. There has to be prior history of mental illness. Um, we we haven't I have not seen anything about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what would that look like? What does that mean if he has a mental health defense? Um, he had to, um, you know, there's certain things to establish a mental health defense and the, the level, the bar, especially in Florida is real high. Yeah. Uh, there were some issues, I believe, at his first appearance, the judge felt that he was not being responsive to him, wasn't sure if he was medicated. And that could have been, we don't know. We don't know the details of that, but uh, the judge already was a little concerned about how um, present he may have been, but we don't know why. So the, the party and the murders take place on March 29th. On the 30th, the following day, Passion's family 
cannot reach her. So they know that this is not normal. And I love families that are so reactive so quickly because time is always of the essence. There's no, we're not waiting days. We're like right on it. She's missed her call. Something's wrong. Let's go over there. So they go over to her apartment building. Uh, They ask the manager to open up the apartment, but already they've seen a trail of blood coming Mm -hmm. out of the apartment, which is already not good. We already know that something very bad has happened here. And when the family gets in there, they find her dead and stabbed a hundred times. She's in the bathroom. And the child is missing. And the child is missing. And the family would know that there is a toddler. The manager, everyone would know that a toddler lives in there. So now massive search is on. You've got really, you know, two different levels of crimes. You have the crime scene where they're trying to figure out what happened and who did this to her. And now they're trying to figure out where's this baby. Time is of the essence. And there are times where there is a a custodial dispute. We've all heard this story, right? There's a custodial dispute. And whether it's the man or the woman, that person kills the spouse, kills the girlfriend, and then kidnaps the child. So there was really a question here is, you know, was he so mad at her but loved his son So he takes the son and kidnaps the son. And you're right. Time is of the essence. And we don't know so far. Nothing's been revealed about an issue over custody or anything like that. We don't know. We have no idea what motive is here either. There's a lot that we don't know. But the facts that we do know so far are horrific. They're just horrific. So some of the evidence you you mentioned this, Allison, that you thought was very interesting. So there's the authorities say that they found a bloody shoe print that came from a slide, a sandal um, that had the Gucci insignia on it, the GG. So it was uh, it was a bloody footprint. And they say all the you know friends and family say that um, Thomas had a pair of Gucci slides that, that likely would have had that same insignia. I don't know how valuable that is. As I'm going to tell you why it is. I'm going to tell you why it's very valuable to me and concerning. It would be one thing if he, if there was his footprint in the house, but it wasn't a bloody footprint. He, there's a very logical, reasonable explanation that he was there. He was right. there. Meaning, Meaning, and there's if there's no blood, it's an innocent explanation. Well, of course, he was in the house. But by having blood, it means he was there after blood was shed. Mm, Okay. So that is very significant to me because it eliminates his defense of, I have no idea what happened. I left the two of them and everything was fine. Well, everything is not fine if... There is a bloody footprint. Something has happened and he has stepped in the blood. Okay, so there'd be no way of saying it's like that couldn't be from an earlier from your birthday party. You know, I know you were all over the apartment, but it can't be from the birthday party because no one was bleeding then. Correct. So then, as we said, that Amber Alert is is issued um, and the baby is then found the day after the mother's found. So. What we're looking at is literally two days after when police believe the murders happened is when the baby's found. And can I add one more piece of evidence? Oh, please. 
as the police are executing their search warrant and going through the house, they find a bottle of cleaning fluid that contains a bloody fingerprint. And according to the police, that fingerprint belongs to Mosley. And that would be damaging. Although, could he make an argument? Oh, I was at the birthday party. I cut my finger because the man is covered with like a thousand cuts on his arms, but obviously not from the birthday party. Could he make that argument? It's like, hey, the reason I was cleaning something up is I cut myself. Yeah, he could make all of those arguments. And the question is, is a reasonable jury going to say, oh, yeah, that's believable. But who was the person that then came and did and and stabbed someone a hundred times and you happen to have these um, gashes on your arm, your hands, they're so serious that you need to go to the hospital. So you're connecting the dots. That's what police do, right? That's what an investigation is. You're putting these pieces of a puzzle together and you have a cleaning liquid. Why do you need a cleaning liquid with a bloody fingerprint that the police say belongs to him? You have a slide uh, footprint with a Gucci insignia, family and friends say that he was wearing those slides at the party with blood on it. Um, so you're putting the case, the prosecution's putting their case together. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there were enough people at the birthday party who could testify. He had no cuts on his hands and that Correct. no one was injured at the time Correct. because Correct. this happened later on. So um, the police chief of St. Petersburg, Anthony Holloway, held a news conference when they confirmed that the baby had been found in the alligator's mouth. Here's a clip of that. With great sadness, I have to inform you here today that Taylor's body has been found. It is my condolences going out to the family and to his loved ones. We are sorry that it had to end this way. Through investigative technique, we were able to find an area around Dell Holmes Park that led investigators to that area. The, the detectives had been there all afternoon, and while they were there, they were spotted an alligator with an object in, in his mouth. As the, as the detectives got closer, they fired one round uh, to the alligator. The alligator dropped the object that he had in his mouth, and we were able to retrieve Talon's body intact. The father, Thomas Mosley, is now being charged with two counts of first-degree murder. I can tell you now that Talon's mom, Ms. Jeffries, her body was stabbed multiple times. Until the medical examiner has a chance to look at Taylor's body, we cannot tell you the cause of death. I would like to thank all the law enforcement agency that assisted us today or since Wednesday, and a special thanks to our detectives here at St. Pete Police Department. These men and women have worked tirelessly since Wednesday at 2.30 trying to find Taylor, hoping for Taylor for a better outcome. But again, that didn't happen. Allison, this became a national story that we said at the beginning that we heard it as an alligator with a baby. And then when you start going backwards and you hear the crime that was committed here and the two lives that were lost, it's it's much bigger than that. You know, it's right. so much bigger. And that's why I love your show so much, because you really unpeel the onion, because 
the headline of the story was an alligator had had, you know, this baby in its mouth. But the real story is so much more tragic and awful. Um, and it's two lives um, and a crime that we hope to prevent. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, that's how I heard the story was um, a child was found in an alligator's mouth without knowing the full details of what how that came to pass. Mm hmm. So Thomas Mosley has been charged with two counts of first degree murder. He was charged on March 31st. He was booked into the Pinellas County Jail on the following day on April 1st. We're going to show the booking photos and also a photo of him being wheeled in on a wheelchair. So he's got his hands and his arms bandaged like a mummy, both of them really thick bandaging around them uh, as a result of the injuries that we don't know where he says they were sustained, but clearly they were sustained somewhere. And then you have someone with a hundred stab marks. So connect the dots there. Reports and, indicate, I'm sorry. Wait, and can I say something interesting about that? And so many of the crimes that we cover, um, people will go to great lengths to cover up any injuries that they have, right? Oh, true. Um, they'll, I mean, they'll go to such great lengths to cover them up. Or if their car is spotted, they'll they'll repaint their car. They'll do all these things. Here, this man actually took himself to the hospital, right? Took himself to the hospital um, and comes to court bandaged up um, with, you know, looking like a, a lobster. Um, and it, are the people in the gallery and the people saying, oh, my God, those are the hands that were used to hold this, the knife that stabbed this woman 100 times. Mm. Wow. Again, I don't know what defense he's going to have here. Um, the reports indicate that at the time he was not working um, and there were some signs of mental health issues, though publicly that hasn't been explained. He made his first court appearance on April 1st, and he did that via phone from St. Anthony's Hospital. And the judge reportedly had trouble communicating with him, believing he may have been under the influence of medication. It seems perfectly logical. We will, of course, follow this case for you because there's a lot more here, uh, a lot more. Our next case is out of Utah, and it is equally horrific and disturbing as our first case. Now, what's different about this case is Again, it's a father charged. Well, in this case, the father's dead now. But this is a father who was obsessed with his public image, what people thought of him. And then he commits a mass murder of his family because there's no other way to describe this. And then he kills himself. But before killing himself, you know, he leaves this, you know, really in your face, F you kind of suicide note, blaming everyone, his wife, his family and everyone for all his problems. And, you know, what other choice did he have? Ridiculous, ridiculous. The reason we believe here the motive was that the wife was divorcing him, had served him with papers, but really his entire life was falling apart, as we're going to see, Allison. Absolutely. I mean, this, I, I think the serving of the papers was the proverbial straw um, or the match, um, but his life was in shambles um, regarding his job. He had been spiraling for for a while, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. So he killed seven people 
This was back in January. What is new here, and the reason we want to talk about this case, is that the police did a comprehensive investigation and then released the report of their findings of this crime, which we don't always get, especially when there's no one to charge because basically it was a murder-suicide. So there's no one left to charge in this case. But I am grateful that the police have released this information because I believe it's important that we learn and understand because there are a lot of people dead here. And sadly, this has a lot of similarities with other domestic violence situations. But I think it's important we know what happened, why it happened, and where the failures were. Right. I mean, there were signs here. And I think that if we walk through them and if even one person listening says, oh, my gosh, I'm going through that right now, they may make a different decision um, than this uh, than this poor woman did. Yeah. And it appears that there were warning signs two years earlier. Um, um, So many of the experts, including you, Allison, who come on this program, when all of a sudden we have someone who, um, either a young person who snaps at school, um, you know, kills a teacher, kills a girlfriend or an older person, no matter the age, all of you say the same thing. And it really makes me think. You all say, there's no way that this just happened and this this person's mind exploded this day and it happened. There had to have been something and other warning signs. And you all are right. I mean, these things do not happen in a vacuum. Someone does not wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to kill every member of my family. I'm going to kill. I'm going to execute all my children. Um, I'm going to kill my my wife. I'm going to kill my mother in law. Um, you know, this is this has been building for years. And um, I hate covering I, I I it's very difficult when you cover a case and you say, oh, my gosh, along the way, someone could have intervened here. Someone could have intervened there. A different decision should have been made here. And even in my own practice, even in my own practice where I'm a criminal defense attorney and I'm defending people. I see missed opportunities because I also represent people who are mentally ill and I, and I see missed opportunities when um, the mental health system prematurely released them or declared that they weren't a danger to themselves or others. Um, and so I think it's important for listeners and for the public to understand signs and know what to do when you see something that's disturbing. Absolutely. So this all happened on January 4th of this year. It was right after the holidays. We also see a lot of these types of family murders taking place around holidays. These things are triggers. So 42-year-old Michael Height murdered his wife, 40-year-old Tasha. His mother-in-law, which would have been Tasha's mother, Gail Earl, who was 78 years old, then killed his five children. Macy, who was 17, Briley, who was 12, twins, Ammon and Sienna, both seven, Gavin was four. All of them were shot in the head. Very deliberate execution style. Like there is no, oh, this was an accident. No, no, no. He intended mass. uh, uh, This was a very calculated murder-suicide plot. 
So yeah. disturbing. And yeah. then that letter that he writes really undoes, really undoes me. And we'll get to that. So police believe that his wife filing for divorce days earlier was, as you said, the final straw here for this man who had just lost his job. His world was completely falling apart. But instead of owning up to his contributions to this situation that he finds himself in, he just blames everybody else. And before this massacre occurred two years earlier, Michael Height had been investigated by the Utah Department of Child and Family Services back in August of 2020. The allegation was the child was unnamed here. The allegation was that a teen daughter reported that her father was physically and verbally abusive. She claimed that he shook her. He choked her. He yelled at her, yelled at um, the mother and called them both stupid. This is from the report that's been released. The teen then told police that she was scared, but she wasn't physically injured, she told them. The teen said that her father took her mother's cell phone away to keep her from leaving. So that, to me, paints a picture of there's a lot going on in the family, um, that he's very controlling based on this young person's testimony. What does the father respond to the police? He tells the police his daughter is, quote, mouthy. Mm-hmm. She's mouthy. What is this, 1950? Where do you get these words from, mouthy? This is how you describe. She's a teenager. All teenagers are mouthy. Right. But I mean, she's she's describing very specific. Incidents of abuse. I mean, she she is describing to them um, as clear a picture as you can get. And it's my understanding that it was Tasha who sort of downplayed it and said, well, you know, he's never really he would never do something to really harm us. He's been working on himself, trying to make things better. And th- that those are the things that I want us to sort of slowly focus on. And that is when your child is telling you something, when your child sees the abuse that you're suffering and they're telling you that they're suffering to listen, listen to the child, hear what they're saying. If they're the one that's reaching out for help, um, listen to that. Listen to that. Yes, but the others outside of this family who should have been clearly listening, the police, the investigators from, you know, protective services, they decided that there was insufficient evidence to proceed or to charge. Yes. Yes. That was a failing. That was a failing. That was a failing. Huge. Because by the way, normally when the police do intervene and charges are filed, one of the conditions of a resolution in a case is anger management, domestic violence counseling, and those types of things that provide the abuser with some tools to deal with their anger, some outlets, some resources can make all the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, all too often when I'm handling a domestic violence case, Um, It seems that the, quote, victim in the case has forgiven them and is then angry at the criminal justice system for wanting to pursue charges against the person that she or he loves. And um, sometimes the best thing that can happen for somebody is that as a condition, 
They're, they are forced to attend anger management. They're forced to attend domestic violence classes. And they see that this is a pattern that goes on with them. And here are the tools to deal with that when you're feeling that way. Yes. And, you know, could it have been, could it have saved this situation and this family? We don't know the answer to that question, but clearly he was feeling a lot of stress from a lot of areas. It wasn't just his family that he had issues with. He was having issues at work, everything around him, he's having financial issues, everything around him was failing. Mm -hmm. So if anyone needed help, he clearly needed some help. And there should have been intervention to protect that child at all costs. I agree with you. She lists, it is, it's a laundry list of moments and incidents that have uh, happened to her at the hands, she said, of her father. And And they aren't vague vague allegations. They are not vague allegations of a teenager who doesn't like that her parents say she has to be home by 10 p.m. Right. You know, that 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 to me was uh, was very telling, very, very telling. Exactly. But we're not now we don't know if this is the same same teen. We have no idea. But in what police have released as part of this investigation is then on December 8th of 2022. Go ahead. The reason I do think that it is the same teen. Me too. Is because, well, it's also because in at the time of their death, there was only one teenager is the daughter, Macy. Mm-hmm. The, the next youngest was Briley, who was 12. So at that time in 2022, she would have only have been 10 and- years old. So I do think that it was her, but continue. Yes. So we think it's the same, but we don't know because it's part of the first um, part of the report. She was unnamed. The teen was unnamed. Then December 8th, 2022. So it's two years later, but it's one month before the murder. So that gives you the context here. The Department of Child Welfare receives another complaint, this time from Macy, the 17 year old, detailing allegations of abuse. So again, Macy began um, recording, video recording her father's behavior, which she found offensive and odd. And she kept a hidden phone in her room to record not just her dad, but what was going on in the world. Clearly, Macy was a very clever young woman who knew it was important because if the police didn't believe her two years ago, I believe Miss Macy learned this time this time I'm getting the evidence and That's the cops right. are going to believe me. Right. That is right. She is the unsung hero to me in this case. Yeah. Applied to me. And what, what, what is so sad is that one month before their murders, again, another opportunity to save this young woman and her siblings and her mother and her grandmother, an opportunity once again, ball dropped And and it's it's horrible. She she even told a friend of hers that um, in addition to what complaining to the authorities that she had been documenting her father's behavior as part of helping with the mother's divorce. But what I don't understand is and and this is something that really bothers you, Allison. So apparently Tasha, the mom, when she discovers Macy's hidden phone somewhere around Christmas she confiscated it. This, Tasha confiscated it. Don't just tell me that it bothers me. It makes me absolutely crazy 
And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Um, and I know that she has died and I am so sad for her. I'm so sad for the mother um, that she has passed. However, I feel that she was very complicit in her husband's behavior toward their children and that she aided in the abuse when she took a phone away from Macy and confiscated it. Who, When Macy, the explanation that Macy gave was, I was trying to help in the divorce proceedings. She was, she had been silenced in 2020. And now when she was trying to do all that she could to get away from her father and help her siblings, help her siblings. Um, and apparently there was one that said that they didn't want to live with the father, that they wanted to be with the mother. Um, and the mother confiscates the phone. When I read that section, Anna, mm -hmm. I thought, my God, this, this 17 year old was trying to protect not just her mother, but her younger siblings. Everyone. She was trying to protect everyone and get everyone out of there. My question is, and this is always the absolute hardest in these cases of such severe abuse. While absolutely the mother taking away that phone and police say they never found that phone, but I do believe that they found evidence because um, you can always find that digitally. That um, is it possible that the wife was so severely abused herself yes. that she was only capable of what I would call like one step forward, three back. Yes. I have an attorney for a divorce. I'm filing for divorce. Oh my God, give me the phone. What are you doing? You can't have that phone. Your father's going to get mad. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, Wait, but I think that's why that's why shows like this and conversations like this and examples like this are so very important because um, if there is a woman or a man who is saying, wow, my child has told me how awful it is to live in this house. I need to do everything I can to protect my child. Uh, that's why it's so important. Absolutely. I mean, you know, battered women's syndrome is a thing, is a real thing. They, um, you know, study after study is that when you're stripped of your basic humanities, um, and you you literally are brainwashed to believe that you are worthless, um, you behave accordingly. And you can't think straight. You just can't think straight. And so I wonder if these are all pieces that we're seeing of the mother's attempts to free herself from the situation, making, again, strides in one area and then backtracking in the other. I, I think, again, that's why I think this report is so important and this conversation is important that just because everyone's dead and you cannot charge anyone does not mean the investigation ends. We need answers. Yeah, I agree. I we have all need answers. So yeah. so um, on December 19th, so we're, we're going forward, but we're not yet at the at the date of the murders so on December 19th. DCFS caseworkers went to the um, Height home and that's where Michael's wife, Tasha, detailed an incident in which her husband threw the couple's seven-year-old to the ground. The caseworker filed a report and intended to follow up with Tasha on January 5th, and that would have been too late. So again, we have all of this stuff going on where you see the mother trying to do the right thing. But then as we find out right before Christmas, she takes Macy's phone away. It's just this constant yo-yoing. Then on December 21st, 
Tasha. Let me, let me make yeah. one, one comment sure. about that. Um, you know, I want to know what DCFS plan of action was. So, mm. you know, there are times where caseworkers will say, this is a volatile home. I am concerned. I'm going to remove the children from the home. Um, that, that happens a lot, Anna. There's incidents of abuse. They come, they hear it, and they remove the, they remove the children from the home almost immediately. So um, was that a missed opportunity? Um, I certainly don't want to blame the caseworker. I mean, they, you know, there's, but the, this was a situation where the mother came forward and was said that they, that the husband was being physical. With this the is children. the third time, Allison. There's the one in 2020. There's yeah. the one in a, earlier December yeah. that Macy made herself. And now there's this one uh, that the mother made on behalf of this. I mean, that is now three. Yeah. And they're yeah. escalating in the month of December. You've got yeah. two in the month of December. Yeah. How, th- how this didn't, you know, rise to the occasion of someone saying this is an emergency. I do not get, I yeah. do not get this. Yeah. Okay. So then um, on December 21st, we're moving along here, getting closer to Christmas. Tasha was working with an attorney to get the divorce papers in order. Tasha, again, this is the mother says to the divorce attorney, but I don't want him to be served before Christmas. Okay, I don't know if that means she doesn't want to, you know, ruin Christmas for everyone. I don't. But once again, it's like one step forward, three back. So this is not an uncommon. um, This is not uncommon. I hear this that, well, we just need to get through the holidays for the children and then I'll deal with life. Okay, that 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 is not an uncommon theme. The problem with that, the problem with that is that the problem is not going away because of some Christmas carols and some, uh, you know, holiday love. I mean, the problem still exists. And if you're concerned that this person is dangerous, that is not going to be suspended just because it's Christmas time. And, you know, there's some caroling and and Christmas presents under the tree. So I, 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 those type of, I can't do that right now, or I can't split the family up right now. Um, I I hear it. I hear it a lot. Um, But again, wow, wouldn't this have been different if she served him then and took the kids with her else and they left the house? Well, and then when she did try to take the kids away, we're going to get to that. You know, he talks to her and she comes back with the kids and her mother. It just never ends. So and, and by the way, I don't want anyone here. I don't want anyone that's listening to this thinking for one second that I am attributing blame for the death. No, barely no, no. on the mother, because I, no. I, I absolutely am not. I mean, this man is such a monster. This man, um, even after he has he has shot all of his entire family. He leaves behind a note. He's such a coward that look what they've done to me. How could they do this to me? I am simply, I am simply pointing out things that we all should be made aware of because God forbid this is happening in your home or you know somebody that it is happening in their home. These are the red flags we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now on December 22nd, so we're moving along here. A lot's going on in December. December 22nd, Michael reportedly told a friend that he left his job at Allstate 
But then someone else said that, no, he was actually terminated with cause for a policy violation. We don't know the details of this. And Michael indicated to someone else then that that infraction would make it very difficult for him to ever get another job. And that as a result of this, he was not going to get his Christmas bonus. Again, money, job, everything is crashing down around him, family, everything. So he gives all these different reports to people because Michael's all about image, all about image. Everything's fine. I'm going to start a new business. And he apparently even convinced Tasha of that because she had shared with others that, oh, no, Michael's starting his left all state and he's going to start his own business. Right. Um, He sold it. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. So whether she knew that I don't believe that she knew the truth, I guess he continued to lie to her. So. He's he's having these pressures on the side. December 27th. Again, we're we're now past Christmas. Michael Michael gets served finally with the divorce papers 2 days after Christmas. And it he gets served at the Allstate office. Michael acknowledges that he had received the divorce papers um and then he tells the wife reportedly that he wants her out of the house when he gets home, but the children are supposed to stay. So basically he's saying to her, you go, children stay. And the mother's like, oh no, 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 no. So she grabs the children and she goes to her mother's house. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so so now this is all going on between Christmas and and when everyone is murdered. So what happens? Michael shows up at his mother-in-law's house. Of course, Michael knows where his mother-in-law lives. And he's asking his wife to go for a drive so they can have a talk. Fearing for her safety, she told Michael to leave, shuts the door. Stop for a minute. Yeah. Um, Another, a rather red flag. Legal advice, giving people legal advice. Okay. When you see this person's blood boiling when you they're asking you to go for a drive. Um, that's the time that I, I want people to seriously think about getting restraining orders, going, getting the court involved, getting restraining order. Does it stop everybody all the time? No. Does it stop some people? Yes, it does. Does it put the police on notice that there's big problems here? Yes. And at that point, when she knew what he's asking. Yikes, right? I mean, the implicate, will you go, let's go for a drive. Um, I I want people to think when someone's asking you to leave that safe space. So the mother-in-law's or the mother's house at that point is a safe space for her and her children. When they're trying to pull you from there, do you call the police? Do you let them know? Do you try to get yes, a response? Absolutely. Do everything, whatever you need to do. You got to call the cops right away. You shut the door on his face and you call the cops and you get down to the court and you get a restraining order. And at this point, she's got an attorney, a divorce attorney. Mm -hmm. So it should not be a stretch that this is now getting very serious. So once again, sadly, as we see in so many of these cases, on the evening of December 31st, Tasha and the children return to the home that they share with the with the husband, the father. And they take Tasha's mother, the grandmother, mother-in-law with them. I guess their feeling is, well, if grandma's around, he's not going to do anything. Didn't work yeah. out that way, did it? I mean, no. And, and the thing is, I 
you know, there's this cycle of abuse, right? There's this mm-hmm. cycle of abuse that is so well known to people where um, the abuser commits the domestic violence act and then begs for forgiveness and promises to change. And he or she is going to work on that. They're going to work on it. And you, you mean everything to them. And then there is a sense that, um, you know, I, I, I can't live with the, I can't live without you. I need you. You need me. And there is that reconciliation, right? That, that, that reconciliation period. And somehow Tasha believed that if she brought her mother to act as a buffer, um, things would be better. And so again, my, my, my sort of insight into this, my insight, I've been doing criminal defense for almost 30 years is um, unless there's real intervention and help, unless there's real counseling there, right? There's real domestic violence counseling, anger management, um, that person's not going to change. And so when you go back into the house, you are are inviting trouble and she wasn't doing it alone. She was bringing all of her five children with her. Yes. And her mother. And so, so they come back on the 31st, which is a Saturday night. And the next morning they all go to church. This is the part I, I, I mean, there were a lot of straws. I think this one probably for Michael publicly was the last one. So they go to church on Sunday morning and Tasha says to Michael, you're not allowed to sit with the family at church. This is where she draws the line that day. You will not sit with us in church. So he interprets this as being publicly humiliated, right? Yes. yes. Public image. Right. Very, very important to him. So a report we have read says it to, to Michael, um, the public perception of his family as the perfect family meant everything. And I think Tasha knew that so well that at church, she's like, that's how she was going to punish him. And so she punishes him and says, oh, yeah, we're going to church, but you can't sit with the family. I will publicly shame you. You know, this will be how I respond to you. But the thing is, she was dealing with someone who was clearly unstable. So it was a very dangerous move here. So, Michael, then police went through his Internet search. And as you said, you know, Google reveals everything here. So he does all these searches around December 30th. Everything's happening around the time that she came back. And he's looking up things like, what does a gunshot sound like? How loud is a nine millimeter? How loud is a 40 millimeter? If you hear a single gunshot in your neighborhood at night, would you immediately recognize it as such? And would a neighbor hear a gunshot in a garage? Very specific, Allison. Very damaging. Very, I mean, you know, if uh, if he had lived and he had been charged with this murder, you can bet this would have been a key piece of evidence. Absolutely. So then on January 2nd, Tasha told her attorney that Michael had removed firearms from the house. And she told her attorney that Michael had moved into the basement and that he wasn't planning on leaving. OK, so now you have a situation where it's he's not leaving the house. So the following day, this would have been January 3rd. Time out, Anna, one second. Go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So um, that's actually very, that's very telling. And that's, that's really sort of an important issue is the firearms. Tasha had inherited some firearms from her father. They, they were a house that kept firearms. Um, I think one was in her bedstand and he had removed it. Um, if, if there had been a domestic violence report that had been followed through on a restraining order, the restraining order would have, uh, one of the conditions of that would have been to, to remove all firearms from the home, um, pen, pending the outcome of the case. Mm-hmm. So those that's another thing. It's another level of protection that the court will give you um, is, is removing firearms from a a very volatile, dangerous situation. Mm. Well, now we're we're getting much closer to the day of the murder. So the following day, this would have been January 3rd, Michael left his secretary's paycheck on his desk, along with all the paperwork for his living trust. What I don't understand is who's going to be left because everybody is about to die. I don't know why the living truck who there's nobody left. So then here's the other weird thing this guy does. He, according to this report, he records a video of himself begging his wife to work things out with him, saying, quote, I feel like you are backing me into a corner. No, Michael, no, you have put yourself in this frickin' corner. Um, he also sent numerous text messages. Um, he says, I want to talk. I want to talk. And she's not responding. The wife's not responding. So then a neighbor told police that they heard what sounded like fireworks, fireworks at the home at about 3.30 a.m. on January 4th, but that no one called police. I guess his Google search gave him the confidence to go forward with this. Yeah, I was thinking that. I was absolutely thinking that. Yep. And that's what happened, by the way. Yep. That's what happened. And then at 11 a.m. that day, a welfare check was requested by her therapist because Tasha didn't show up for her appointment that morning. And which the, the therapist, therapist said she never misses the appointment. She right. never misses. And wasn't answering her phone. So she knew yeah. something was going on. And obviously yeah. she would have information about how volatile things were in the home. That's right. why the therapist called the police. Right. Right. The therapist even says that the therapist says, look, I'm, Given the situation, she just served him with divorce papers. He won't leave the home. I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. And that is where everyone finds the massacred family. Family's dead. He's dead. It's unbelievable. It wouldn't have made a difference, by the way, because we, we know the timing of the gunshots was in the middle of the night, but Essentially, the police go to the house and um, no one answers the door. And so it's it actually was not the police that made the discovery. This drives me crazy, Allison. Go ahead. Finish it because it's horrible. Police leave. Nobody answers the door and the police leave. Please leave. And so it is concerned neighbors. Yes who enter the home through an unlocked door. There's an unlocked door. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I, I mean, just, just to be clear on the legal issue here, 
And these were exigent circumstances where the police did not have to have a warrant to enter the home. They get a call. They get a call from what they would have known as a reliable source, which was not an anonymous phone call. Mm-hmm. It's so a therapist. I'm a therapist who says, I'm concerned for the safety of my patient. Here's what I know. So they had they had exigent circumstances to enter that house without a warrant, but they leave. They leave. Now, I do think that the damage was already done, meaning the deaths had already occurred. But um, it's another failure, Allison. It's another failure of the system. Yeah. And that's what bugs me about all yeah, this. I agree. Mm-hmm. So finally, the police do go in. Um finally, because the neighbors go in and find this and they're wearing body cameras. And as part of the release of this report, they also released the body cameras. And so we're going to play this clip for you. And I know some of you are only listening and not not watching on YouTube. So um, what you're going to see here is the police walking through the house room to room. There is commentary as they go from room to room, which you will hear. So here's the clip. Right here. Well, Look here, we have one more deceased in this bed. Appears to be a gunshot to the face. Check in this room back here. Hello, please. One deceased here. Okay. Making good. Uh, I'm checking here. Okay. No, you're good. Wait. Okay. Yeah. One more. Gunshot back in the head. Police, if you're down here, make yourself known. Two, four, six stories hold, right. Hold right there. Got it. Uh, one more on top, blood on bed. Did you find the wife? Allison, it is very disturbing as they go from room to room and they're calling out that someone is dead. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. I mean, literally they're making discoveries of, of a gunshot to the head in every one of the children's bedrooms. Yeah. It was, it was really, really horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, They then find Michael who's dead in the basement, which is where they keep a home gym and that's where he was living. So his body's on a sleeping bag. There's a pistol between his legs. He suffered from a self-inflicted gunshot wound and I, please help me here. He had tissue paper stuffed in his ears. What to muffle the sound of the gunfire? Was that for himself or is he's killing everyone in the house? No, as he's, I mean, I took it as, as he's killing everyone in the house, he didn't want his own ears to be affected. What is it with this, with this and the father in the first case? I know. It's unbelievable. The narcissism, the narcissism. Oh, worried about his own little eardrums. Oh, excuse me, as you're blowing everybody's brains out in your house. It's unthinkable. Unthinkable. 
God. So he leaves a note in which he takes no responsibility for the murders. Instead, he blames his family, insisting that he would, quote, rather rot in hell than put up with another day of this. Yeah. Yeah. What's <laughs> this guy? See, and okay, I, I, I got it. A statement like that, Anna, this was his attitude and people knew it. I mean, this was not something that came, that, that formed in his mind that day. And that's why when we're talking about red flags, when people are, they're, you know, they, they, when they're coming up with these crazy paranoid theories about life and this one's out to get me and that one's out to get me and there is no truth to any of it. I want us all to be aware of it and hear it and hear it for what it is and recognize that that is odd behavior that could potentially turn into something lethal. Yes. The the red flags were there. He actually describes himself in his letter as, quote, an honorable good man. No, you are not a good man. No, you are not honorable. You are a disgrace. You are despicable. You are evil. You are cold-hearted. And you're a coward. You didn't like this life? You could have just left. Agreed. Agreed. Oh, wait. And then he goes on and he says, quote, it's the words he uses. This is nonsense. And I can't handle it for one more day. We will not be a burden on society. I keep asking for help and you won't listen. See, you know, that struck me. That struck me as very, very interesting. I, I don't know what that means. Was that that the his family was asking? Had had he because it from all reports, he had never reached out to help for help. He had never acknowledged that he had done anything wrong. So that was an odd sort of uh, postscript to this horrific tale. Horrible. Horrible. He, you know what? He is just he blames everyone but himself for his own problems, you know, blaming everyone. It's like. I'm disgusted by this man. I am absolutely disgusted by this man. He is a complete coward. He didn't have to kill his entire. There was no reason for this. He could have if he didn't like it, he could have left. He could have done whatever that's on him. But well, he didn't he have to take everybody. I mean, let's cir- let's circle back to the beginning of the conversation, which was he he felt the control that he had over his family had slipped away and he couldn't take it. Didn't take it. No, he could not. Services were hurl- were held on the 13th for the family. And um, I'm sorry, we're seeing just too many of these cases right now. And I think I always ask the question in, in this program, what would justice look like? In this case, there can be zero justice. There's no way there will ever be any justice here. But hopefully with the discussion and the revelation of what happened and when it happened in a chronological order, perhaps maybe this will give someone the strength or the knowledge to maybe learn from this horrific experience, but there's never going to be justice for this family. There is, it is impossible in this case. You're right. You're right. But I, um, and I've always loved this about you. 
I've always loved how important it has been for you because I've known you for a long time now, not just as a result of this show, but in life um, to get to the bottom of things and try and make a difference moving forward. And so that's why this story that has no happy ending, that has no criminal conviction um, is so important still. It is. It is. And please, let's remember this family and have a moment for them. It is time to take a break here, everyone. And just, it's been a very, very heavy program. It's time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. Here's our producer, Will Updike, who has a disguise on today. He thought Allison and I would not recognize him. Yeah, well, I'm I fresh, know who you are. I'm fresh out of contacts. I, I, so I got glasses on. I got a, yeah, I, I got a hat on. I'm, uh, I'm trying to go as incognito as possible here, I, I guess. Uh, but we got a heck of a case for you this week. Um, just a, a bizarre set of circumstances. So we have a stolen bus, eventually a nude man. We got a dead deer. Uh, just all the elements to a to a comment story piece here. Uh, so this one comes out of Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, where a 25 year old man is now in custody after allegedly stealing a school bus and leading police on a chase. Now, how this all came together was, uh, according to Carroll Township Police, the morning of April 4th, Officers were notified that a school bus had been stolen in Abbottstown, Pennsylvania. So officers later in the day, they reportedly see this school bus in the parking lot of a Rite Aid and the lights are apparently turning on and off intermittently in the, in the bus. Um, so the, the bus eventually leaves this parking lot and uh, police catch up with it to perform a, a routine traffic stop. And now apparently initially the bus comply. It, it pulls over to the side of the road, but then apparently it pulls off onto Route 15, which is like a, a, a kind of like a highway over there. And it's winding in and out of traffic lanes. Um, it, it then leaves the highway at some point driving over a berm. And according to police, this nearly flipped the entire bus over. Uh, but the driver was able to regain control. They continue on the Gettysburg Road. Uh, and the driver of this bus, our suspect here, Tony Saunders, at some point, decides that the bus getaway isn't going to work. Uh, he, he flees the bus on foot. Uh, and, and during this police chase, Saunders is, is reportedly, you know, he's, he's running through high traffic areas and reportedly taking his clothes off. I don't know if he thought that this would aid in the speed of his escape. I'm, I'm, I'm not really quite sure what was going on there. Uh, but police catch this, you know, now, now, now nude foot fleeing man. Uh, he's taken into custody. Allegedly, he confesses to stealing the bus uh, to officers. Uh, uh, he said that he had stole the bus after crashing a BMW. Not sure. They, they didn't indicate if that was also stolen, if that was his vehicle. Um, and he told police also during this interview that he had stolen this bus because he was placing a dead deer in the back of it, which he planned to use as fertilizer for his garden. Direct quote. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so he's it's springtime. You know, it's important. You know, everything's blooming. We need we need fertilizer. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The plants the plants need food. <laughs> apparently, but he's he he was arrested and booked into the York County Jail on charges of fleeing or attempting to elude a police officer, receiving stolen property, resisting arrest, and reckless driving. Um, yeah, this alibi is kind of like what what interests me in this case. Uh, I you know I I don't know. I, I don't know if that was true, like in, in whatever state of mind he was, if that if that was truly like just, where this was coming from. I just love the idea that he's like Frogger, right? He's going over the highway, avoiding traffic while stripping down naked. 
I yeah, mean, Frogger well, is exactly well, right. It's in disguise, but it's a very <laughs> disguise. I, mean, I don't know who, you know, I mean, you know, most of us do like, well, we put on glasses, we wear a hat. This guy goes and strips naked. Yeah. Usually um, you put on more clothes for a disguise, yeah. right? Yeah. Different clothes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I know I should have gotten a wig for this episode, too. Really, <laughs> really could have thrown people off. Um, we got a lot of comments on this one. X Pin Up Girl said, No one can say he's boring or lacks imagination. Yes. I got to agree 100%. True. I don't know what kind of life you lead, but. If, and he's a gardener, right? Yes, right. Like if, if you're truly <laughs> going to these lengths for your garden, um, <laughs> I, I'm a little bit impressed. Uh, we got a lot of people curious about the state of this guy's garden. Rima T said, I want to see his garden. He seems really passionate for it, which, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I wonder if it's like, I wonder if it's like flowers or if there's more, if, if it's vegetables or herbs or, or what he's got going on there. Mm-hmm. Philip Y said, dude's vegetables are going to come out tiny and y'all are just laughing at him. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know the the difference that a dead deer makes in gardening. I'm I'm terrible at houseplants. I have succulents that I can barely keep alive. Uh, but maybe I'm missing the dead deer aspect of it. Like maybe that is where I'm going wrong with all with all my current I, houseplants. Know, usually, when I, you know I go to the garden store, dead deer compost is usually not on the shelf. That's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. But I this is maybe, LA. I thought you maybe know, this guy knew something. I do. I love the fact that he uses that as the. The, you know, the, the, the carcass as the reason that he needed to steal the bus. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 A school bus. Uh-huh. And was it in the BMW before? Like, I'm just having trouble kind of moving the deer. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Like putting together he, the timeline of like, so when did the deer, the deer enter the thing? Like, did he hit the deer with the BMW? Right. Right. And now what do I do? Yeah. Is this like a whole <laughs> weird cause and effect thing that I, my mind just can't get to the same end that his did? Diana said, dear, oh, dear. Ah, good Pretty one. Good. Pretty good. Uh, Haley M had my favorite comment, though. They said it was all fawn and games till he got Ooh, caught. Ooh, good one. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that'll do it for this week's comment section. Good luck to everybody out there who's gardening. I, I you know, I hope you don't have to do anything this extreme. Um, but, I, you know, with, with spring coming, it feels like we're finally out of winter here in Southern California. So, uh, yeah, are. Get, the poppies are in going. bloom. Poppies have gone crazy. I even see poppies on the side of the freeway. And, you know, it is the law in the state of California. You are not allowed to um, step on, cut or touch a California poppy. So don't be cutting any of those poppies because that's an offense. That means no picking them. Yeah. No do picking. not make, a, do Anna, not make your own bouquets. Also, I covered a story uh, really early this morning <laughs> about covering potholes. You know, we have all those po- everywhere because all the rain. It's crazy. Pot- yeah, it's like illegal to cover the pot. You cannot go on a public road and cover. Why a- not? Arnold Schwarzenegger tried to to cover one of his potholes and I give him credit. Yeah, but that was actually a service drain that they were working on. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But I, you know, I honestly, I appreciated the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger got out there and is like, I'm sick of this. I'm covering these damn potholes. Okay, maybe it wasn't the best example of a pothole, but as far as I'm concerned, Arnold can come to my street anytime and Absolutely. help fill these And potholes. I got to add one thing before we end. I learned that in Oakland, California, there's a group of people called the Pothole Vigilantes. And they go out in the middle of the night and they fill potholes. And then they put up signs saying, well, if you'd like to donate, um, you know, if, so we can keep this going. And in the middle of the night, they fill the potholes in the street. That I is love so them. cool. How do I join great. them? I love that. I know. 
some of them are getting so bad. I'm worried I'm going to like I'm, I'm going to bottom out my car or something going over one of these. Look, well, with this outfit, you could join this vigilante know, group right, or start one down here. Actually, I think that's what one of the guys. Maybe that's you, Will. Oh, my God, Will. You're the pothole vigilante of Southern California. Allison, it is always such a pleasure. Um, so fun to be with you. And always. I miss you when you're not here. And I'm so excited when you're here that we like talk forever. And when we do the longest podcast. <laughs> No, I mean, look, I, I have always loved what you do and I have such respect for you always, always. Um, and I think you do such good work and these were heavy, hard cases, they but were. such important tells. Yeah, I think so. I think that they are. And we always try to do a variety of cases on this program. And I am so appreciative of all of the times you said during this podcast, here's another moment where maybe if you're in this situation, you should try this, call the authorities, get a restraining order go to the court, you know? So these are all really important tools for all of us to try and stay as safe as we possibly can and keep those around us safe. And Allison, we just, we also love your commentary. I know you're obsessed with the Lori Vallow case and we didn't do that today because every day is crazy, is crazy day in court with her. She's going to be in court for weeks, maybe months. So we'll, we'll, we'll loop back. We will, we will, we'll loop back on that. Allison, where can people find you and keep up with all of your analysis on all these cases? So I run a criminal defense practice out of Los Angeles. Name is Allison Treasel. I um, am the legal expert for KTLA in Los Angeles. And I have a segment with Mario Lopez on um, Access Hollywood. It's shown weekly on Access, Access Daily. So I am certainly around and about covering crime and interesting stories. And but one of my very favorite things to do is to jump on a podcast with you. And I love that the, the you know, the other family members from your son's baseball team are Isn't listeners and fans. I love that. We love I know. that. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. OK, so you can find me at Anna G News on all social. That's Anna with one N. You can get this podcast episode in all of our podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to our newsletter at TrueCrimeDaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. 